with kids in particular, they need to have some structure and some sort of an expectation that presents a feeling of security for them to help reassure them that no matter what is going on in the world, that the family environment, that your home, that your love is going to stay the same, that there's going to be a security in that for them. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset Show. This is a podcast about the financial, money, and recreational mindset needed to successfully plan for and live your best life before and through retirement. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset Show and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Dr. Christine Moutier, the Chief Medical Officer of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Christine knows the impact of suicide firsthand. After losing colleagues, she dedicated herself to fighting this leading cause of death. She has testified before the U.S. Congress and provided multiple congressional briefings on suicide prevention. She has also presented to the White House, spoken at the National Academy of Sciences, and co-anchored CNN's Emmy Award-winning Finding Hope, a suicide prevention town hall. Dr. Moutier is the go-to expert in the area of suicide for virtually every news outlet and publication. Suicide prevention and mental health is an area of great importance to me after losing my brother-in-law in 2004. I thought there would be no better way to highlight Mental Health Awareness Month than to have Christine on the show. Well, hello, everybody. I'm here with Dr. Christine Moutier from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Moutier. Thank you so much, Larry, for having me on and for all you do for the cause as well. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have you, especially in Mental Health Awareness Month. It's great to be able to share this with everybody. Now, you're the CMO, Chief Medical Officer at AFSP. Can you tell us a little bit about your path to the organization and your role there? Sure. I am a psychiatrist, but believe it or not, the issue of suicide and stigma and mental health experiences really comes to me through a 360 experience, not just through patient care. I had been Dean for Student Affairs and Medical Education at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine before I came to AFSP. And it was there that I first, as a student, experienced my own struggles, then followed by the experience of losing physician colleagues to suicide. Several, it was actually more than a dozen over a period of 15 years, and became deeply involved in preventing suicide among my own colleagues. So it was while I was taking care of patients and doing medical education and all those things. And I got to know the organization AFSP as a volunteer. I helped start the San Diego chapter and the issue of suicide prevention and specifically for certain groups. In my case, it was my colleagues, physicians and trainees was such a passion for me. And through the work with AFSP, I came to understand the scientific underpinnings for preventing suicide. That's how I designed the program at UCSD, which is actually still going strong. So seven years ago, made the move across country to work full-time for AFSP. That's great. And we appreciate all your help and your guidance in the organization. 
Being that this is Mental Health Awareness Month, people are clamoring for information. What can people do in order to care for their mental health? I mean, are there certain things that they can be thinking about and proactively, mindfully doing? Absolutely. I feel like the term mental health sometimes means something different or very specific, but the truth is all of us have mental health, just like we all have physical health. It doesn't mean we have necessarily a mental health condition, although one in four Americans do. So it's also very common. So things like taking care of your sleep, just making sure you're hydrated, that you're having decent enough nutrition and keeping alcohol intake to a minimum, managing your stress, like exercising on ideally some kind of regular basis and just looking out for how you're doing, how you're feeling. Are you able to be resilient and stay optimistic? All of those things tap into our mental health and we can learn how to practice you know, certain just very like specific daily activities that help shore up our mental health and our resilience and, and for our loved ones as well. This can be like a family affair, really. It's kind of strange. We always think about and when you hear people talking about how to take care of their physical health, I want to eat right, I want to exercise, get to the gym. A lot of these things, like you said, are directly tied to mental health also. But a lot of times people don't make that correlation or don't think of it in that type of format for some reason. Yeah. You know, I notice even among my friends and colleagues who are at the gym, like not, you know, not professional colleagues, but people who I work out with, I've noticed even some of the men starting to talk about they need to do whatever it is, you know, spin class or whatever for their mental health. And that started to creep into kind of my day to day, just like normal life outside of work. And so I think you're right. I think it's kind of like this new wave of understanding about how the brain and the body truly are connected. And so when you take care of your body, you're actually taking care of your brain and your mental health as well. Yeah, I know. Listen, I try to ride the Peloton at least five, six days a week. That's my exercise. And there are days where I don't want to get on the bike and I'm like, oh, I'm just going to go ride for 20 minutes. And then I hop on the bike and I find a class that's 30 or 45 and I'm like, I'll give it a whirl. And then when you're done with it, you feel so much better. You're like, why did I even not want to get on today? And you can feel the difference immediately. Yeah, it really is remarkable how those actual chemical changes in the brain and in the body. And, you know, the thing is, we're talking about it almost from the angle of assuming we don't have a particular vulnerability to depression or anxiety or PTSD or addiction. But for those who do, and there's now research to support this, regular exercise can be a very powerful part of the treatment plan, actually, along with psychotherapy and medications, things like that. So I think we have underappreciated the power that these sort of mundane things like nutrition, like exercise, certain activities, taking a walk, certain types of music. And I think the neat thing too, is that for each individual, there's probably some special things that are kind of like pack an extra punch for them uniquely. And so it's kind of like a discovery process to figure out what that is for you. Yeah. What benefits them 
best. Yeah. So listen, we're in a new year. We're coming out of a year where we were in the middle of a pandemic. We're still involved in that. And there's been a lot of talk about what the impact is going to be or is already to children, to kids and caring for their mental health with a lot of the extra stresses that they've seen over the last 12 months or so with their lives being disrupted. Are there things that parents can do to help their kids' mental health? And is this a different approach for kids versus adults? Are the things that we just discussed in the adult world work for kids or is it something, a different approach for them? A lot of the basics definitely apply to all human beings, no matter what your age. And if you think about it with kids in particular, they need to have some structure and some sort of an expectation that presents a feeling of security for them. And so even simple things that you can do as a parent to help them know what's coming in the coming days or weeks to help reassure them that no matter what is going on in the world related to the pandemic or anything else, that the family environment, that your home, that your love is going to stay the same, that there's going to be a security in that for them. And so I think when it comes to like news going on in the world, I would be careful about overloading kids, especially young kids. But frankly, even us as adults, we need to limit the amount of sort of media intake that we're having. And for kids, of course, social media is such a huge part of most of their lives that that's another way that that translates. You can help them. I mean, depending on the age of your child, of course, if they're really young, you can sort of structure it for them. But if they're in the junior high and up age range, you want to engage them in a dialogue about what they notice is good or not so good for them. That's really ideal rather than just setting rules kind of in a way arbitrarily. I'm talking very idealistically. If they're mature and they are willing and able to be open with you and articulate some of these observations that they have, that can help them cultivate their own kind of sense of ownership of their life and their mental health, their well-being. But I think over and above all of that, though, as a parent, what I recommend and what I've tried to live out as well is to create an environment through the little things, through the day in and day out, dinner time, in the car conversations, where you're creating an environment where you're involved, you care, where there are boundaries and expectations, but where they also hear on a regular basis that nothing that they do or no challenge they face is going to be too much for you as a family to handle together and to really invite them to be sharing their thoughts and observations. That's a wonderful thing if a family can create that kind of sort of boundaries, but also safe, supportive environment. Right. I think you already alluded to it or said it outright. The the baseline things, if you will, that we discussed earlier, like the sleep, the nutrition, the health, the exercise, that still remains tried and true for them, maybe even more important for them. Yeah, absolutely. That is something that my kids are older now. They're in their 20s. You look back and of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. but I wish I had even been living that out a little bit more that when my son dropped out from baseball, that we had insisted that he find some other exercise, sports-related activity, because it is so, so good for them, not only on a physical health standpoint, but I think for their sense of identity as they're maturing and growing and changing. 
and the team sport thing in particular, I think is just a wonderful way for them to be socially developing as well. Which has been difficult that even that over the last year is some of those sports. I know a lot of people know that my kids play pretty competitive ice hockey and they've had basically a shell of a season over the last year because of the pandemic. So that's even been a struggle. So we've been even trying to, you know, any opportunity they have to participate We've been going out of our way, even if needed, to get them involved, to have that connection, the involvement, and the exercise when possible. I appreciate what you're saying, Larry, because part of what you're implying is that you knew it was a priority to try to make it happen, if at all possible. And so there are ways that we can structure our lives where our physical and our mental health are actually taking a top seat of priority because it will have to do with how you're not spending your time or what you're spending your money on. Or even like in the COVID environment, it's a little bit about that risk ratio in terms of exposure Mm -hmm. when you know that your kid needs this level at a bare minimum of social or physical activity. You're almost kind of willing to make like really to make it happen. Yep. Because you know it's, it's important for their health. Absolutely. My wife and I have been spending many hours in our car outside the rink while our kids go in and have practice. And if that's what we have to do, then that's what we'll do. One of the things that you kind of touched on a little bit earlier is the change in technology and social media in particular. How is that the advancement of technology, which is typically put in a way of a technology advancement is a good thing. We then have the advent of social media. How has this affected people and their mental health in general? Oh, it's such a big question and such a big issue. There is quite a bit of research going on trying to understand the relationship between screen time in general, but also particular gaming or social media interactions and the association with mental health and even suicide risk. And what I will say is it's a super complicated area because every study is kind of designed differently. And many of them are not of super robust scientific rigorous quality, which would really have to look over time and prospectively rather than just a cross-sectional moment in time. Because with those cross-sectional, you can't determine causality. You can only look at association. But the bottom line is that there are some key findings that look like for kids who have particular vulnerabilities to anxiety, to depression, to feeling exquisitely sensitive to rejection, let's say, and very sensitive to interpersonal interactions. Social media can be an extremely negative environment for them because the reactions are quick. There's a lot of judgment and a lot of perceived rejection that happens in these micro moments on social media. But of course, also social media is being used for incredible good when it comes to finding a community that's safe. Let's say you make it your business to find an organization like AFSP or others where there's a community of people openly disclosing certain deeper aspects of their mental health experiences and getting support for that. Mm -hmm. And not just clinical treatment, but like social peer-to-peer support where you know that you're not alone, where people are talking about these ways that we can live in a more productive, healthy way. So it's kind of like a double-edged sword in that. Right. 
Yeah, so I think we just have to figure out a way to get what we need and want out of social media and and a way that we can benefit from it and not find ourselves in the death scroll, so to speak, where you're just sitting there scrolling through good, bad, and indifferent and putting yourself in a position where you're not feeling good about yourself after all said and done, just finding out what those boundaries are for you and utilizing it as a tool for good and not one that's going to cause you damage. Yeah, that's right. And I think doing that as an adult individually is one sort of level of the challenge. And then setting some sort of expectations or boundaries around that in a family environment is another aspect to that. So even little things like if I could go back and do it all over again, I would have set up a situation where everyone knew that their cell phones were going to charge in the kitchen overnight so that you have some quiet time before bedtime where you're reading or doing something other than looking at your screen. Right. And similarly, where you're waking up and doing something other than looking right at the screen. In particular, the impact on sleep can be really negative if you're looking at that screen for hours right before bedtime. Yeah, I agree. I think the same thing applies to watching the news right before bed. I don't think it's really that great of an idea for probably very similar, if not the same reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Let's pivot for a second. Can you tell us at a high level how AFSP assists those who are affected by mental illness? Sure. I mean, I think the biggest way is by providing a sense of community. And the fact that we have 73 chapters across all 50 states. And so there are activities going on as well as social media, ways to connect virtually even during the pandemic that for many of us involved with AFSP, in addition to our whatever faith communities, our families, our work lives, AFSP also becomes this sort of network of a true community as well, which is remarkably important for all of us all the time, but especially during the pandemic, where some of us became more isolated. But the other thing is that we're the leading private funder of all suicide-related research and suicide prevention research. And so on our website, you can find a host of resources and information from everything from just about depression and treatment options, but more specifically that if you're worried about someone in your life related to having struggled either with suicidal thoughts or after an attempt, that there are resources and information there. And again, in many ways, a community of support. So for example, if you've lost a loved one to suicide, we have a program where a volunteer will reach out to you and have a conversation and really just listen and support and make sure you know that you're not alone and connect that individual with resources. Yeah, I mean, there are so many great resources and opportunities within AFSP to help. So rather than talking about and looking at maybe those areas that we get involved with and and those that we don't, I think it might be better. Are there any areas that AFSP does not get involved with with regard to mental health? Yeah, the one and only thing we don't do is provide clinical treatment. But you can find a treatment finder on our website, certainly. Right. But right, everything else about how to get involved to raise awareness, how to get involved to create legislative change at the federal or state levels, those are all things that our mission does involve. And I think, as you know, Larry, tens of thousands of individuals and families across the country are getting involved. And that's because so many of us are actually personally touched by mental health and or suicide 
over mm-hmm. time. It's actually turns out to be the majority of the American population. And I think sometimes people just don't realize that that many of their friends and coworkers have had those similar experiences because we hadn't been talking about it for so long. You know, my story going back to 2004, when I lost my brother-in-law, at that time, I didn't realize how prevalent it was. And then it wasn't until I started proactively speaking about his situation and Keith and what he was going through, that it was rare to have a conversation with somebody and then not say, well, my uncle or my brother or this good friend of mine from college, it became so much more commonplace that it was like, I had no idea. But until I started talking about it and I was open about it with everybody, it really shined a light on really what was going on there. Yeah. Isn't that incredible? Because if you think about it, if you hadn't started talking about it, you might have kept under that impression that it was sort of like a one-off situation and that people Mm -hmm. wouldn't actually necessarily understand. The truth is that once you do start telling your story, the powerful thing that can happen is that your perception of other people and the community around you gets to deepen and change Mm -hmm. in some really positive ways because you realize that as much as we all have success in the ways the world defines it, we're also all very human. And so that sort of underbelly side of the human experience is actually common, so much more common than we realize. And for some of us, I would say most of us, that sense of being connected to other people and where you can like live more authentically, that turns out to be a really powerful kind of secondary benefit in a weird way of being involved in suicide prevention. Yeah, I agree. And I think that one of the great things about AFSP is the fact that there are so many ways for somebody to get involved that somebody who is interested in the legislative and political component that may not be interested in their survivor outreach, there's a spot for them and vice versa. And I think that that really opens up and lends itself to a wide pool of people that if they are affected or know somebody affected, that there's a place in this organization, AFSP, where they could get involved, have a meaningful impact and do something that they enjoy and they benefit from themselves, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. It is one of those things that when you can apply yourself to a higher purpose that is so meaningful, it does have all these benefits to it. It's important work, but it's also that we can become engaged with something kind of bigger than ourselves in a way. Absolutely. You mentioned research is a big component of AFSP's mission. What types of studies have they supported and how has AFSP seen an impact in the area of mental health and suicide prevention as a result of these research studies and the money that they've allocated there? Gosh, our research program is very diverse and broad, and that is by design because suicide is complex in terms of what the drivers of risk. So our studies, we funded projects that have looked at among high-risk people, meaning people who have mood disorders and have already attempted, what are the biggest things that make a difference for good in terms of their pathway moving forward? So that's everything from the development of certain types of psychotherapies like cognitive behavioral therapy. We actually funded Aaron Beck's group 
to customize cognitive behavioral therapy for people who had had suicidal thoughts. Similarly, dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT, that's another very powerful risk-reducing treatment, not just for people with depression or anxiety or borderline personality disorder, but specifically for people at risk for suicide. But even more than just clinical interventions like those that I mentioned, we're looking at things that relate to culture, the economy, issues around firearm owning communities and what can make a difference to save lives when there is a gun in the home, for example, and what interventions and educational initiatives work best. So it's a broad, broad range, everything from, I didn't mention like genetics and neurobiology. Mm -hmm. That's another important strain of the research. And I think sometimes AFSP became known for its interest in biological aspects of suicide. But the truth is we fund actually many more studies, but a whole diverse set of research. Right now, there is a total of approximately 100 studies going on that are funded by AFSP. That's a $20 million current investment in research. And so every time those studies finish and conclude and have their results published, we actually try to distill that into a brief report, which we put out to our network. And then through a variety of things on our website and through our social media feeds, we try to have kind of a steady stream of working in to the public messaging, these truths found in the science. And I think it is why we are so certain about which old myths from the past must be dispelled, because the science is so clear that these are health and human-related experiences that are not about cowardice or moral weakness, spiritual failings, any of that stuff that used to be really considered a part of suicide risk. Right. Has there been one study or an outcome from a study in your tenure with the organization that really stands out that you say, hey, this outcome, this finding is like earth shattering that has made such an impact. Is there that one Hmm, kind of study that sticks out in your mind? Probably about 20 kind of flashed through my mind quickly. I'm just trying to give the listeners a sense of something that's come out of one of these research studies that's really been groundbreaking. I will point you to the study we funded by an expert named Ursula Whiteside. And you can actually go to her website, which is nowmattersnow.org. And on her website, she actually presents techniques that can reduce an intense feeling of either panic, hopelessness, or even suicidal thoughts. And there are things like mindfulness techniques, there are thought-stopping techniques. There's even use of like rubber band or cold water to kind of break that neural network synapse that's happening that can be so kind of all-consuming for the person who's in the grips of it. But the neat thing about her research is, I mean, she does a whole lot of things in her research, but one of them is she actually studies the impact of that website on people who are suicidal. So that's one kind of tangible thing you could check out, nowmattersnow.org. And that came out of a uh, research grant that AFSP funded? Yes, yes. That's awesome. That's awesome. Let's talk about suicide rate. There's a lot of talk about that all the time, going up, going down. What is going on with the suicide rate as things stand today while we're recording today's show? Yeah, great. Well, I'm glad you're asking, Larry, because what has happened over the last 20 years has not been good news. It's been a year-over-year increase in the national rate of suicide from 1999 through 2018, which had been our latest year that we have suicide data from the CDC, for a total of a 35% increase over that two-decade period. 
But we just have heard from the CDC preliminarily. So it's, we're waiting on the finalized data. I think in about two weeks, it's coming out. But if it holds from the preliminary data, we will be seeing the first decline in the national rate of suicide in 20 years. And that is going from 2018 to 2019, a 2% decrease. And while that sounds wow. like a small amount, that's actually thousands of lives Mm-hmm. that the trajectory had been going up and up. So we are very hopeful that this is true and that it's a bending of the curve and that trend and that prevention efforts that we've been working so hard for for many, many years might be taking hold and getting scaled up at the level that they need to in our nation. Is there a way to really put together and draw the dotted line from that rate going down and the work that AFSP does or that's virtually impossible to do? That is (laughs) not possible from just the rate data and the work that we've been doing. However, there could be studies done at a later time that drill down a little more specifically. For example, we could look at the more micro findings in that trend to see which demographic populations are actually moving down the most. If there are parts of the country where that has made the biggest difference, if it relates to a method change dramatically. There have been certain initiatives that we've been involved with through Project 2025, as you well know, that have been very specific about interventions in health systems, in firearm zoning communities, and in correctional settings. And for those listening, Project 2025 is AFSP's initiative to try to lower the suicide rate by 20% by the year 2025. That's great. These numbers sound great and all. Do you see the impact of the pandemic kind of reversing that trend that we saw from 18 to 19 once we get the data for 2020? Yeah, that's the million dollar question. We're very worried. We don't know yet is the short answer. The first few months of the pandemic when quarantine was happening in most communities and not just in the U.S., but around the world, the data that we have from, well, it's a few states in the U.S. There's also data from Japan, Norway, Australia, and a couple of other countries that mostly consistently showed not an increase in suicide rates. In other words, either a downgoing trend for those first few months of the pandemic from like March through June or a similar rate sort of year over year. Right. There is some seasonality to suicide rates, as you probably know, in the spring suicide rates actually tend to go up. People always think of that around the holidays, but it's more like April, May, June. And so actually right now during May Mental Health Month, it's an important time to be thinking about ways that you can support people around you who might be struggling because for some reason, those rates do tend to go up in the spring. So we're watching that closely with regard to your question about the pandemic and the impact that it might have on suicide rates. I recently published an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA Psychiatry, on this very topic of COVID and what do we know about its potential? How is it pressing on risk factors for suicide? So it's a very detailed sort of report about that for anyone who's interested. We could link to that possibly. Yeah, well, we'll be interested to see what the numbers are come this time towards the end of 2021 and see what they actually come in for 2020. I know that the media and social media, et cetera, is giving people the impression that there's going to be this stark increase, but hopefully they're all wrong and hopefully we don't see those numbers rise and maybe we even see them continue to contract a bit. Yeah, that would be what we hope for, for sure. 
So we talked earlier about all these things that AFSP does from legislative to local to survivor outreach to Project 2025, which I just mentioned. Are these the ways that people can get involved? How can people who are listening to this to say and are saying, you know what? I know somebody who suffered or suffers from mental illness. I know somebody who died by suicide and I really want to do some good. I really like to get involved with this organization. Where can they start? What can they do? Well, probably one of the simplest things you can do is go on our website, AFSP.org, and check out all the materials and consider making a donation. This is a period of time when finances for so many organizations have changed because of the pandemic and beyond. And so that is probably the most concrete thing you can do. But beyond that, you can get involved in your local chapter by going to AFSP.org. And there's a place to find the contact information for the chapter closest to you by putting in your zip code. You can sign up to be one of our 35,000 voluntary field advocates that we make it very easy. Our policy team is amazing. And so you get an email and you just two clicks later, you have contacted your local legislators about the bills that are timely and on the table right now going on in your county or your state or for the nation. We'll be coming up on our Out of the Darkness Overnight Walk, which happens every year in the May-June timeframe. So that's another event that is very powerful and that you can get involved with either by walking or by just checking it out and perhaps donating to one of the walkers. So I think, again, the main thing is I would just encourage you to take that step because whatever is on your mind about what you've been going through or you're noticing in your loved ones, there's a good chance that by connecting, you're not only going to get a whole lot of information, but an incredible sense of support and sort of a greater sense of confidence with what to do next. I agree. I think the way you outlined how to get involved is exactly the way that myself and my family got involved after my brother-in-law's passing. We were looking for some ways to do something. We didn't know exactly what, and we saw that we were weeks away from the community walk here on Long Island. So we decided to walk and we raised some money. And really, that was our first entree into AFSP and what it was all about. And now, 16 years later, we're involved on a regular basis. And I've been sitting on the national board for a number of years. I think I'm coming to a point where I'm going to have to roll off, but I will still be involved in the organization because I think you guys do some great things. So yeah, I mean, beyond that, also, I would encourage people if they have an interest in the organization, they could always also reach out to me. I'd be more than happy to share my experience and help point them in the right direction into an area that might be a good fit for them to get involved with the organization. But I think you point out the fact that, to repeat what I said earlier, there are so many different ways that there's really, you know, it's like Baskin and Robbins. There's a flavor for everybody and there's a way for everybody to get involved in a way that they feel comfortable with, in a way that they can make the time commitment and also make a financial impact as well, which is we call it the hat trick because you get all three. So I appreciate that. We end every show, Christine, with asking our guests all the same question. This is the Midland Money Mindset. We've talked a lot about mindset in our conversation today. But what did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success? 
Oh, I love that. And I just first want to say, Larry, that your involvement and your family's involvement with our organization has been nothing short of remarkable over a long period of time. Your dedication has just been incredible. And we thank you for that. And we hope that it has been something that has truly been win-win in terms of what you and your wife and your larger community have gotten back. I mean, the way that you've rounded up your community for the golf outings and for so many different events, the writer's stuff that your wife does, it it's like each thing took on a life of its own. It's really yeah. just incredible. Well, we appreciate that. We just look back and I think the thing that we hang our hat on is we know for a fact that we have saved lives because we've become like go-to people in the community and we've steered people in the right direction who are not in the right direction. And we know that their loved ones are safe today because of some of the advice and guidance we were able to give to them. And that's all the reward that we need in the world. And AFSP has provided us with a lot of the tools that have allowed us to be that per- those people and be able to guide people in the right way. So thank you for that. Oh, that's great. That's really great, Larry. Okay, so what have I done today that brings me joy? What did you do today that brought you joy? I think because of the way the pandemic has gone, I got to get out of my house and go work remotely in a cafeteria with my daughter. Nice. who was doing her college work remotely. And what happens when you're working side by side with somebody is you kind of sharing little bits back and forth. And she asked me, what am I working on? And of course, she grew up with AFSV and mental health and suicide <laughs> prevention. So it's remarkable to me how, again, going back to something we were saying earlier, that when you get to the point where you can talk about these issues of mental health and even suicidal struggle in a way that doesn't have any stigma, but just has a sense of caring and concern and knowing the truth that these are part of human experiences. You just get to kind of connect on a natural and authentic level. And I think that is obviously something that's very important to me. But that was just one little example that came to mind that I thought, how lucky am I that even in the midst of busy, busy work and weird times like it is right now, that being able to connect with family in that way can happen just moment by moment. That is awesome. And yeah, you have to appreciate those moments. Sometimes you don't in the midst of it, but when somebody asks you a question yeah. about it and you look back on it, you're like, wow. It's so true. That was really uh, worth more than I really thought it was when I was doing it and walked away from it. It's cool. Well, Christine, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. We'll have links to everything in the show notes. We appreciate your time and all of your effort and dedication to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And I want you to make it a great day. Thank you so much, Larry. I want to thank Dr. Christine Moutier for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset Show. Christine is a great advocate and asset to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. It has been an absolute pleasure working with her as a member of the organization's national board. The work that she and AFSP are doing is groundbreaking and at the forefront of the field. Please follow Christine on Twitter at CMoutierMD and the organization at AFSP, AFSP National, on all platforms. Being that this is Mental Health Awareness Month, I also encourage you to make a donation or find a way that you can get involved with this great organization. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. 
make sure you visit our website at midlandfinancial.com and be sure to smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content. And listen, please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. Be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about the mindset needed to successfully plan for and live your best life before and through retirement. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.